And lastly, but not leastly, our next topic and our last topic is the Russia-Africa Summit. A delegation of African leaders met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in the city of St. Petersburg, Russia. And when I say a delegation, I mean that every African nation sent delegates and 17 African heads of state attended in person. So this is one hell of a summit, a very, very big summit. Uh, it, not that long ago, Russia held, held a, a smaller summit with a smaller African delegation. Uh, it was Russia and Africa in a multipolar world. And sort of this summit builds off of that. And it's, again, this is a really big and really consequential summit. And it sets the tone for what we can expect moving forward. And this is... This event here is why uh, this combined with the coup in Niger is the reason why I've went on that tangent about the, the new scramble for Africa and the, the, the very different shape it's taking than I thought it was going to take when I first speculated on it in the early, early days of the podcast. And again, it's a, it's a better shape. It's a better direction, way better than getting colonized again. Uh, and in fact, you might, we might see some really major powers pop up in Africa as a result of the new way in which the scramble for Africa is taking place. And Russia and China are at the forefront of that. But uh, as we can see with this massive, del- I mean, it's it's a feat. It, it's a feat to pull off to get every African country to send a delegation to your summit about Africa. Because the U- when Blinken goes to Africa... The heads of state are not lining up to meet Blinken. <laughs> They're not sending delegations to go meet Blinken. They they do not care about that nigga at all. <laughs> they, they do not care about that dude. They He is inconsequential. And the same can be said when the EU goes to Africa. No one's lining up to meet Schultz or Ursula von der Leyen or Josef Borrell. All these these C and D tier F list actors on the global stage, no one's eager to meet these people. And yet, when Sergey Lavrov goes, everyone wants to see him. When Putin invites them to come to Russia, every literally every country in Africa has showed up to this summit. And I just really want to drive that home because you don't get that unless you have popular buy in not just on the part of the the people in Africa, but on the part of the governments. And it's considering how big and diverse of a continent uh, Africa is geographically, politically, et cetera, even religiously, it's an insane feat to get every single one of them to either send a delegation or in the case of 17 of them for their heads of state to show up in person for this summit. Now, what was discussed uh, was a number of things. One, that Putin announced Russia would be forgiving over $23 billion in African debts owed to Russia. So a major debt forgiveness program. That's, that is winning them friends. That's winning them a lot of friends. Russia will also be engaging in economic, energy, and industrial development assistance in Africa. That's one of the, the big takeaways I got from this. Uh, what was going on there. And this is going to be complete with educational assistance meant to help train 
African workers in the skills that they need to develop their own resources and their own infrastructure and build their and help maintain and build and grow their own manufacturing and industrial bases. Like, uh, if I had to break it down in layman's terms, essentially what Russia has proposed in this summit, what they announced in this summit, I should say, is a skills and energy and an education oriented belt and road initiative. That's, that's going to be the baseline of what is essentially going to be the Russian belt and road initiative here where they're going to be providing the education, they're going to be building power plants, uh, they're going to, and they're going to be doing skill training. And because that that's what the Russians are doing here, because right off the bat, you're going to have a lot of the people, a lot of these other commentators talking about how Russia and China are competing for Africa, uh, but China's the big player. They're the big winner. Well, when you look at what the Russians are doing, it's quite symbiotic. It's very symbiotic, in fact, with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Because China's building the roads, the bridges, the rails, the tunnels, the train stations, the ports, the airports, the refineries, and the factories. And then Russia comes in, and they're going to be building the power plants, the energy necessary to make all of that happen, the Russians are going to come in building the power plants, including nuclear ones, right? But on top of that, Russia is going to be training the Africans on how to operate the factories, how to operate the refineries, and how to speculate for and extract their own resources, how to maintain the roads, how to build the roads, how to, how to maintain the roads, the bridges, the tunnels, the rails, and the ports. And ultimately, the Chinese and the Russians are going to work together to teach them the Africans on how to build these things themselves. These two projects will combine to create full spectrum economies in African countries. And that that's, you know, economies that have a little bit of everything going on, rather than being wholly dependent on, say, the sale of a single resource, you know, uh, a, a one trick pony economy. Like think of how the South in America was dependent on cotton, King Cotton, or how Arabia today is so heavily dependent on oil, which is part of the reason why they took that massive trade deal with China back in, was it 2022 or 2021? I think it was 2021 where they had that massive deal with China. Or no, no. It, or was it when Xi went uh, literally just a few months ago, when right after, right on the heels of Biden getting down on wounded knee and asking the the Arabians not to raise the price of oil. China and Arabia, and wh whichever year it was, I'm I'm blanking right now. I'm blanking. You know, uh, they agreed to that massive energy infrastructure and industrial development deal, where the Chinese were going to help Arabia with their energy, with their industrial build out, both in terms of green energy in terms of the production of uh, uh, other tools and equipment. And that was huge for Arabia because they've been trying to build a full spectrum economy that is not so heavily dependent on oil sales. And of course, that's what every country should strive to be able to do. Iran has that, which is why even though they, their oil energy sector has been sort of crippled 
before the Chinese came in and single-handedly revived it with their own oil demand, Iran had a full-spectrum economy. They, they had a little bit of everything going on, which is why we can't sanction them. Russia has a full-spectrum economy. They have a little bit of everything going on. And because these economies are based in manufacturing and based in real physical production, sanctions can only do so much to these countries, which is why they can sit there. Uh, I'm talking about Russia and Iran, of course, which is why they can sit there under sanctions for years and years and decades uh, and just continue existing and for their economies to continue growing. That's what we're seeing being built, or at least that's the ambition for what's going to be built in Africa, which would effectively give Africa complete and total independence from whatever Western European or American uh, busybody that wants to cancel them. Oh, you, you banned gay people. We're going to sanction you. <laughs> I'm, of course, referring to Uganda there. Oh, you, you said something we don't like. We're going to sanction you. Oh, you, you had a, a military coup because your, your old government was corrupt, but we like your old government. We're going to sanction you. Oh, you don't stand with Ukraine. We're going to sanction you. You have, you have Wagner mercenaries in your country. We're going to sanction you. Again, nobody likes being canceled. Nobody wants to have to deal with some busybody telling them what they can and can't do with their own country. And so it's no surprise that they have all signed on to what's happening right here with the Belt and Road and with Russia's partner. This is definitely, this is, make no mistake, this is a partner program to the Belt and Road. It can operate separately on its own, but it's so symbiotic with the Belt and Road that there's no way that it's not meant to be a partner program to the Belt and Road. This is Russia's ticket in, and they're gonna ride that. They're gonna ride the the roller coaster of the Belt and Road all the way to the top, and then they're gonna enjoy the slide down. Like these two programs together are gonna turn Africa into an unsanctionable continent of full spectrum economies that are capable of mine of extracting develop developing and refining their own resources all the way from the point of extraction to finished goods and of course they'll they'll sell some raw materials you know there, there there's a market for that but the the birth of a manufacturing sector in africa is going to turn africa into a massive continent a massive market for trade because as countries become wealthier their their value as a market increases which is why shrinking markets theory or the the fixed pie theory the 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 zero-sum game theory of trade doesn't work because if you have mutually beneficial deals where both economies grow if your economy is larger then you can do more trade and if the, the person you're trading with, if their economy gets larger too, well, you can you have more business opportunity. You have more opportunities between each other. And hell, you can do trade with other countries. And if those other countries have their economies grow at the same time, it's a multiplier effect. Zero-sum trade doesn't exist in a world where you have growing economies. Now, we might see something different with a lot of the demographic declines going on in the developed world uh, in europe and in asia 
but with the Middle East and Africa on the rise, we could see a self-contained system essentially carve itself out in the world. But back to Russia and China. Russia is gearing up to make Africa, again, and this is in tandem with the Belt and Road. These are symbiotic partner programs. They're making Africa into an unsanctionable continent. And since Russia is already an unsanctionable country, of course they're going to go along. Russia has paved the way. If you if you are tired, it's it's they basically gave them a sales pitch. It's like, are you tired of being sanctioned by the West? Well, are you tired of those long nights staying up wondering if your economy was still going to function in the morning? Well, fear no more because we have our magical economic adhes- enhancer adhesive. You just take this pill and suddenly you become unsanctionable like the russians essentially gave them one hell of a marketing pitch that was too good to turn down africa is going to become unsanctionable russia as an unsanctionable country is paving the way for every other country to become unsanctionable as well and that combined with them working together with the BRICS to overthrow the dollar as the world's reserve currency with a gold-backed settlement currency, that that's what it looks like. It's shaping up to be. It's a. It's not necessarily you're going to be um, buying a, a cup of coffee with the BRICS currency. And again, they need a name. Uh, we can't. We can't just go on calling it the BRICS currency. We need a name, you know. But you're not going to be buying a cup of coffee with that. But if you need to move your currency, if you need to swap, say, Indian rupees for Chinese yuan, well. You can do that with the BRICS currency as the, the the settlement. So it's denominated in the BRICS currency rather than in the dollar, which means that your economic system and your trade is completely independent of the dollar, completely independent of whatever the United States says or desires, which means that your foreign policy and your domestic policy can be completely independent of whatever the United States says, unless you live by America, of course. You always got to take into account good old geography. But that's what we're looking at. And if Russia's unsanctionable, and all of Russia's trade partners gradually shift toward being unsanctionable, then what does that mean? When Russia's trade partners are 80% of the world's population? It means that 80% of the world's population is unsanctionable, which defeats the purpose of sanctions. The sanctions become a, a meaningless institution in that world. And, and that's even in a world where the dollar remains the the reserve currency, which it's not going to be. It's it's going to be replaced with the BRICS settlement currency, not the Chinese yuan. The Chinese, from my understanding, really don't want it. They, they're, they're fine with their currency as it is. But this is a, a massive deal. Uh, I mean, the Belt and Road has already been having massive inroads in Africa, and the Japanese and the Indians are sort of catching on to the Belt and Road. But with this Russian partner program to the Belt and Road, it's going to turn Africa into an economic powerhouse, which, again, when we look at the map, this development seems destined to disproportionately benefit East Africa. I'm just saying it right off the rip. The strip 
of coast running from Egypt down to Mozambique, maybe South Africa, maybe Madagascar, but Egypt to Mozambique is going to be where it's at. That's going to be the heart of African industry, finance, economy. I can just see it now, especially since you have the Nile over there. Uh, that, that's where all the big city states of Africa were to begin with. It was in the East because they had access to the Arabs and to India and to Asia. It, this is going to, I feel, disproportionately benefit the countries of West, uh, not West, of East Africa. And it, it just is a matter of, will it trickle to West Africa? But this is a major deal. And it's like, I just can't stress enough. It's, it's such a game changer. And it really does demonstrate what I've been saying, which is that Russia is the leader of the multipolar world. They're not some, some backwater junior partner to the real threat, China. No, China's in the background and they're content to being in the background. Russia's leading this transition. And like the two leg, like two legs in a relay race, they're going to run towards the finish line, China and Russia. They're going to run, they will run towards the finish line. And that finish line is the end of the American led liberal world order, complete with its rules based international order. And it's the beginning of the multipolar world order where nations are sovereign. Like this, the underestimation of Russia really has to stop. Like it's getting out of hand. It's, it's so bad. And it's so ingrained that it seems subconscious, even among the people that believe Russia is going to win the war in Ukraine. What I've noticed, and I was just out, I was out driving doing work and it, it sort of hit me how underappreciated of a possibility it is that Russia just wins the war. Like you have the, the pro Ukraine side doesn't even want to envision that the Russia winning the war is just uh, the worst case scenario for them. And they don't even think it's going to happen. They think that Ukraine's going to win. We just have to commit more, more money, more weapons to Ukraine and Ukraine can win. And it's a moral indictment on our character. If we don't commit to Ukraine and it's a moral indictment on the world, if Russia wins, that's how the, the pro Ukraine side, generally speaking, views the war in a very hyper moralistic way that sees Russia winning as an absolute evil that must be prevented at all costs because World War II. But the pro, but even the pro, the pro Russia slash Russia's going to win side of the, the Ukraine war argument, they're focused on the day to day happenings in the war. They're focused on the, on the events on the ground in a way that the pro Ukraine side really isn't. They're looking at the failure of the Ukrainian offensives. They're looking at when Russia does a withdrawal. They're, they were look, they were in the trenches metaphorically in the Battle of Bakhmut, talking about uh, the progressions and how Russia was slowly and steadily taking the city. They were the ones talking about Mariupol. They are the ones talking about the Azov battalion and the Nazis in Ukraine. And they're the ones who are talking about how they, the Ukrainians, if they want to still have a country, if the, the Americans and the Europeans want to save face, you need a negotiated settlement because Russia's going to win the war. You can't go on with these rates of loss where you're losing 
five, 10, 15 tanks and armored vehicles a day. You, that's just unsustainable losses, not just for Ukraine, but for the, the Europe and the United States, for NATO. We don't produce enough of this equipment for Ukraine to be losing it on a, that, that much on a daily basis. The Ukrainians lose in a day what takes us a month, a month to produce. Uh, that's the definition of unsustainable losses. And then you, when you get into the Ukrainian casualties, oh my God, they're pushing three quarters of a million men. They're probably above that if we take the casualties that they're already at just from this counteroffensive where it's 20,000 on the low end. Lukashenko of, of Belarus thinks it's 26,000. Putin implies that it's even higher than that. We'll just say 30,000. 30,000 casualties over the course of uh, a month and a half, or, or I suppose almost two months now. That's insane. That's a, a terrible increase, a terrible spike in casualties. When people like Conor, Conor McGregor, Scott Ritter, and even RFK Jr. were already putting the number of dead at 300 to 350,000 and an equal number of casualties, it, uh, uh, well, uh, double that for casualties. Uh, an equal number of wounded, I should say. So 300,000 dead, 300,000 wounded, 600,000 casualties. Or 350,000 dead and 350,000 wounded, 700,000 casualties, which puts the Ukrainian casualty anywhere from 630,000 with the losses from this counteroffensive to 730,000. The the pro-Russia side, the pro the, the Russia's going to win side of this equation, is hyper focused on the events of the war, and on the what the consequences of it are going to be, except for how the war ends. Like they bring up that the war has to end in a negotiated settlement. They bring it up because, well, Ukraine can't win. And they bring it up. They, the, I, but even though they bring up the negotiated settlement, even though they bring up the need to bring the war to an end because Ukraine cannot bring it to a close by military means. And all you're going to end up doing is sacrificing Ukrainian lives by pretending that they can win the war by military means. What isn't talked about is the very real possibility that the way this war ends is that Russia just wins. Russia could just win. No, no negotiated settlement, no peace deals, no off ramps, no nothing. Russia just wins by military force alone, by blood alone, uh, wink, wink for my Hearts of Iron fans, Russia just wins. And, and then what? Because when you look at how, uh, how, and again, going back to the underestimation of Russia, it, it really needs to stop. People, a few months back, when we were, there were speculations, when the idea of a negotiated settlement really started to make its way into the mainstream, like the, the cable news, yeah. They were talking about how oh uh, China could negotiate the peace. China might in China might uh, intervene. This is before the the counteroffensive started. Back when it was supposed to be a spring counteroffensive, and the United States and Europe were afraid that the Chinese might propose a peace, or that the Chinese might start arming the Russians. And it was like, um, okay, that's a bit strange. But why do the Chinese have to negotiate the peace? It's like they just instinctively overwrote, uh, well, they instinctively wrote out Russia from that equation. As if the Russians 
are just incapable of doing that. They they don't think that the Russians can end the war themselves because they operate on the assumption that the Russian military is incompetent and has bad logistics and it has bad leaders. And that uh, you have Kissinger saying, oh, the Chinese could come in and mediate a peace. You have people in these, uh, these intellect, these college, uh, not college, but say foreign policy institute and these war college debates saying, oh, it's time to freeze the conflict. You have Jeffrey Sachs. We need to freeze the conflict. Okay, who's going to freeze it? Because the Russians aren't. Like, at every turn, you just have this di- this disregarding of Russia. Not even, I say underestimation, and, and perhaps this stems from the de-underestimation, but there's just disregarding of Russia as a factor in the war. It's like, we're going we're gonna to impose a peace. We're going to send in these peacekeepers into Ukraine, whether Russia... And they're just not going to tell the Russians. You remember back when we were talking about that in the episode? Uh, not in this episode, but a few months back, when there was speculation that the UN could send peacekeepers into Ukraine and or that the Poles could send in a, a, a force into Western Ukraine or that there would be, there'd be a coalition of the willing built up by the United States to go into Ukraine. And it's like, okay, you're going to send in these peacekeepers, but you're not going to tell the other side of the conflict that you're sending peacekeepers in. That is a terrible recipe. It's like they they just disregard the Russian presence, and it, it, everybody else everybody else can negotiate this peace except for the Russians. Uh, and I just I just don't understand it. Either they they broke the agreements of the the grain deal, like oh we're we're gonna get the Russians to make all these concessions to us. We're gonna say that we're gonna give them these concessions, but then we're not gonna do it, and then they're all. They all have shocked Pikachu faces when the Russians pull out of the deal. Now it's a humanitarian crisis. Well, maybe you should have lived up to your end of the deal. It, it's crazy how they, they play these games. And I, I, you even even with the peace deals, you, they say that they would do one thing for Russia, or, and then they don't do it. And when you hear them talk about and this is the, the, the more mainstream, uh, the, the people you'll see on TV. You know? When they talk about the need to make a, a peace, what are they talking about? They, 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 the immediate thing that comes out of the pro-Ukraine side is that Ukraine needs to get all of its territory back. Uh, you see even a lot of the con- quote-unquote conservative commentators uh, saying that Ukraine needs to get all of its territory. We can't reward Putin's aggression. It's like Putin won the war. It's like they just disregard Russia as a factor in the war. Like, we're going to end the war. We who backed the losing side, we're going to end this war by demanding that the winning side give back all the territory that it took. In the Does that make any sense? That'd be like, that'd be like we Ameri- the Union wins the Civil War against the Confederacy, and in the peace talks, the Confederacy demands that the Union surrender all of its land to the... What? 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 What kind of a deal is that? That'd be like if after the Mexican-American War, Mexico demanded that we give them Texas back. Like what? And California and New Mexico and everything. What? No, you lost the war. How are you going to demand for the territory that we took from you in the war when you lost? It, it, there's no common sense. And. And it, and perhaps that's the reason why no one even bothers to think 
that the ver that there's a very likely chance that this war ends in a very simple way that there is no negotiated settlement there is no great ukrainian offensive that breaks through to crimea there is no regime change in russia there's just russian victory there is no chinese coming in at the la at the 11th hour to negotiate a peace there is no china bailing russia out by sending them uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of shells and artillery and tanks perhaps the war ends because russia just wins and i uh again i i realized it nobody was really thinking about that nobody was really contemplating that as a possibility yeah like granted i talk about it as, as a possibility because i i came to the conclusion early on that i think that's how the war is going to end but if no one's going to make this peace uh, the russians were willing to but the ukrainians initialed it and then walked away if the peace is not going to be negotiated then russia's just going to win and what then what what happens to all this talk all this propaganda it all just falls apart in the face of the newly reborn russian goliath and i think that that's what we're on track for and it's again it becomes more likely by the day every day that the the west spends not making peace not even trying to make peace with russia the more likely that outcome becomes the more likely that outcome becomes but that's enough ranting for one day i i do hope you that's all i got that's all i've got folks i do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast we we history is moving fast uh it's it's moving at a breakneck speed but no matter how fast it goes folks we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.